Physiology by Physio. It's inside the board's newest podcast. Just search your favorite podcatcher for Physiology by Physio. Subscribe to the podcast so you know when we release the first episodes very soon. Welcome to the Inside the Board's Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Hey, it's Patrick. Welcome to the Inside the Board's Study Smarter series for the USMLE Step 1 and Comlex Level 1. I'm taking a break this week, so Stuart and Ted are dissecting some high-yield questions from our friends at Exam Circle who are the providers of the content for our all-audio question bank, Step 1 version. So go download our app and subscribe to the all-audio QBank so you can have even more learning on the go. So no delays today. Let's get right into it. All right, everyone. Good evening or morning or afternoon. You're listening to the Study Smarter series. I am joined today with Dr. Ted O'Connell a world-renowned author of USMLE Review Education Materials, and we're going to work through some microbiology questions. First, we're going to start with, actually, let me back up. Patrick and I have recently thought about doing things in a little bit of a different order just to help people with the test-taking process. So for these questions, I'm going to read the actual question first, the interrogatory, and then go through the vignette. And then we'll kind of summarize it and break down the question, okay? So, for this question, which of the following actions would have been the best option to prevent this infant's current condition? So we have a 36-year-old baby boy and is noted to have several concerning findings while in the newborn nursery. He was born at term via elective C-section. No complications occurred during pregnancy. APGAR scores were 7 and 8 at 1 and 5 minutes, respectively. He failed his hearing screen and has an audiology referral in place. Physical exam is notable for a small for gestational age infant with a continuous machine-like murmur noted in the left upper sternal border. The baby's mother received little prenatal care and endorsed fever and headache during pregnancy. Late prenatal labs are notable for the following. RPR negative, rubella non-immune, Hepatitis B surface antibody positive, hepatitis C negative, group B strep negative, and a blood type of A positive. Again, which of the following actions would have been the best option to prevent this infant's current condition? All right, Ted, what are we thinking is wrong here? Just to kind of summarize this patient. Well, the patient's mother was late to prenatal care, so that immediately raises concerns for all kinds of different things. Uh, in the infant uh, himself, I heard a potential hearing deficit, as well as this heart murmur. And then we were also given the information that the mother had had a, an episode of fever and headache during the pregnancy, which raises concern that she had an illness. And then the question is, which illness potentially caused some of what we're seeing in this child? And then getting into the labs, um, we see that she is rubella non-immune, hepatitis B immune, hepatitis C negative, group B strep negative, and A positive. So we're not necessarily worried about 
all the issues that you can deal with uh, with an RH negative situation with late prenatal care, thinking something infectious and putting it all together with uh, this baby's constellation of, of issues. Excellent. So we have a 36-hour baby boy who has some audiology problems, a murmur, which is characteristic of a PDA, and a mom who had little prenatal care, got sick, and is rubella non-immune. So which of the following actions would have been best to prevent this infant's current condition? Is it A, a flu vaccination at 10 weeks gestation, B, the MMR vaccination prior to conception, C, MMR vaccination for the baby within 24 hours after birth, or D, rubella immunoglobulin to the baby 24 hours after birth. So this baby is characteristic for a congenital rubella. Rubella is one of our torch infections. There are quite a few things to go over with torch infections, which we can decide whether or not we want to get into. But being that mom was rubella non-immune and that there is this finding of hearing difficulty and murmur, that's two of the couple of symptoms that you might see in congenital rubella. So to think about how we could prevent congenital rubella, looking at our answer choices, getting rubella immunoglobulin is not going to be helpful for this baby. Getting the vaccine is not going to be helpful. Uh, Basically, in both of those cases, the damage has already occurred. And then our best option here would be B, to get the MMR vaccination for mom prior to conception. That's absolutely right. The um, best treatment is prevention with an MMR vaccine before pregnancy. And I think this actually brings up some interesting learning points about MMR vaccination and pregnancy. It is a live vaccine, so it's contraindicated during pregnancy and should only be given prior. And if you know that the female is not actively pregnant, um, because giving it as a live vaccine can increase the likelihood of transmission to the fetus and the development of congenital rubella syndrome. Yeah. And then the other distractor I threw in here was actually getting the flu vaccine. So the flu vaccine is inactivated. So they can technically get it. I wanted to throw it in there because uh, I gave mom a a fever and headache and that wanted to be a, a nice little distractor there. Right. Right. Just to give you something else to, to think about here instead of all the problems being around rubella. So rubella, like I said, is one of those torch infections. When you have congenital rubella, you typically see uh, a, a couple of different things. We, we already mentioned the hearing problems and the, the PDA, which can be classically seen. There may be other cardiac defects and cataracts are a common finding as well. The cardiac and eye problems are usually occur early when or when mom gets the infection earlier, and the hearing is more of a late infection finding. Other things that can occur, obviously, with torch infections in general is they can cause fetal demise and preterm delivery. Rubella is kind of can be a chronic infection, so uh, you can get it any time during life. Other findings might be skin findings like purpura liver findings like an enlarged liver and spleen, jaundice. They may have microcephaly uh, and have some mental developmental delay as well. So ideally, you're going to get your MMR vaccine before pregnancy, right? Absolutely. Yep. And when I think about, you know, 
like I said, giving the vaccine after might not be a, a great idea, just given the fact that, you know, the baby's already gotten the virus. They're not, it's not going to undo any of these findings that you're going to be seeing. So it's kind of a chicken before the egg problem here where you're trying to give them immunity for the virus they already caught. Presumably, they may even have some sort of immune response circulating at the time. And giving an immunoglobulin for rubella is not going to improve the, the, the cure rate as well. Like we said, the damage is done. The classic situation where you might be giving someone or the baby an immunoglobulin is going to be like hepatitis B, where if you know mom has positive hep B and we're trying to help the baby, we might give the immunoglobulin at the time of birth before the 24-hour mark. Anything else we want to add? One other thing that I might add is related to option C, where it's offering MMR vaccination to the baby within 24 hours after birth. It's important to remember that live vaccines are contraindicated in infants who are under a year of age, uh, with the exception of oral rotavirus. So that's why the MMR vaccine starts at the 12-month well-child visit. Oh, that's a great point. Yeah, we can't even give it based on uh, just timing for vaccinations. Uh, That's another very complicated topic that is ever-changing, even in our current landscape. You want me to take this next one? Sure, let's go ahead. All right, with question two here, I will also start with the interrogatory. Which of the following exposures likely led to the development of this patient's current illness? So the vignette is a 27-year-old female presents to the physician's office with complaints of cough, mild shortness of breath, and fatigue over the past two months. She reports that the symptoms began one week after going on a cave exploration with her college roommates. She denies encounters with any animals during her trip or any known animal bites. They took a six-hour boat ride to get to the area with the caves. None of her friends have similar symptoms. Chest x-ray reveals a localized infiltrate in the right middle lobe with mediastinal lymphadenopathy. She has a past medical history of systemic lupus erythematosus and recently finished a course of prednisone. And then that leads us into the interrogatory, which of the following exposures likely led to the development of this patient's illness? Is it A, contaminated water, B, bite from a bat, C, bird droppings, or D, spores in the soil. So Stuart, do you want to take us through kind of a summary of the case and and your thoughts on working through this one? Yeah, so what we have here is a female who has recently traveled to a cave and also took a boat ride trying to kind of complicate things here. She has mediastinal lymphadenopathy and a history of lupus. Also, she's been taking a steroid recently. Because of that, with the combination of cough, shortness of breath, and then the the infiltrates, uh, we're concerned for some sort of opportunistic infection here. Then given our answer choices, we can kind of go down the route of fungal origin, bird droppings, contaminated water. Well, I guess contaminated water could be other things or spores in the soil. Because of that, I, I, I kind of lean toward coughing, shortness of breath, infiltrates, and someone who recently went into a cave. <laughs> when you think about that, usually they would give you like a, an air, a place where they had gone spelunking or cave diving. 
and uh, they would classically have histoplasmosis. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, I think this is one of those ones where um, in on some vignettes, they would actually give you a region or a state where they traveled. A- anytime you hear caves, histo is something that just has to kind of be a, a word association that can score you easy points on an exam like this. So in that case, now you have to know, okay, so I know this patient has histoplasmosis. So where do they get it? Do they get it from the water, the bat bite, the bird droppings, or the spores? Histo is classic for bird droppings, or it could even be bat droppings, actually, if we wanted to kind of combine those. Uh, and th- that would be found by just inhaling those spores from those droppings while in the caves. So I would go with bird droppings. That's exactly right. Um, so this patient has histoplasmosis, uh, which is caused by histoplasma capsulatum. It's a dimorphic fungus that's characteristically found in the Ohio and Mississippi river valleys of the United States. Um, and people who are cave exploring and getting exposed to bird and bat feces are at risk of um, picking this up. Most immune-competent individuals are going to be asymptomatic, but this patient uh, has been on prednisone and, in theory, is immunocompromised. So in those who are immunocompromised, they can experience um, pulmonary symptoms. And in severe disease, they can even get disseminated histo, um, which can lead to multiple organ involvement, including the liver, spleen, bone marrow, skin, CNS. So then moving on, you know, some forms of these questions on the exam are going to ask about treatment as opposed to the origins, as in this case with the bird droppings or the organism, which is histoplasma capsulatum. So the treatment for mild to moderate disease is oral or intravenous antifungals such as itraconazole. But severe or disseminated disease often requires administration of intravenous amphotericin B, also called amphoterable, because of all the potential toxicities and side effects associated with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, in kind of to summarize that, you know, you might have um, skin findings, the the lung findings, and nodules are kind of characteristic. Uh, it's a dimorphic fungi azoles and amphotericin and then you might have like the bird droppings or bat droppings kind of leading up to it yep i think those are some like key remembering and learning points yep so a couple other points to bring up the contaminated water you can think about like gi processes um usually you don't see like a a a gi process with histo the spores is probably the one that can throw you off some of the most just because you can think of fungi or yeast mold with spores. But in general, we go with the bat droppings or bird droppings more likely. Then the bat bite is kind of a, a throw off. You know, I guess if you're getting bitten by an animal, probably not passing along what I think of, you know, is not a fungus being passed, but uh, something like rabies, right? Absolutely. In which case you're going to have a very different treatment route. Any other important details about histoplasmosis we want to hit? No, I think we've uh, covered that one pretty well, Stuart. I guess the main thing is to think about the pulmonary findings on someone who's gone cave diving recently. Right. So moving on here, 
Again, so this next question, what is the most likely responsible organism in this child? So I have a two-year-old girl who's brought to the emergency department by her parents for respiratory distress and sore throat. Three days prior to presenting, the child began complaining of a sore throat that progressed to difficulty breathing the following day. This morning, the parents report hearing a high-pitched sound when the patient breathes in and that she now begins to lean forward with her mouth open and cries when she's trying to lay down. In the ED, the child appears toxic. They have a fever of 102.5 and notable strider on exam, as well as drooling from the mouth. History per mom reveals that they have chosen to delay vaccinating because they want to protect their daughter from government regulation. So again, which of the following is most likely responsible for this child's pathology? Is it A. Haemophilus influenza, B. Moraxella catarralis, C. Parainfluenza virus, or D. Strep pneumo? So I guess what do we have here? Well, what we've got, Stuart, is a little girl uh, who's unvaccinated, which I think should just jump off the page at you as, as the reader or listener. She's got a pretty significant fever, strider indicating something going on in the upper airway, uh, drooling from the mouth, which is unusual. And so then the question is, what is going on and, and what is the, the likely cause? So for you, when you think of a patient and you see a two-year-old who isn't being vaccinated and they're drooling with Strider on exam, he kind of jumped to one and only one thing really first because this kind of becomes an emergency. So in this kind of patient, you're thinking uh, first and foremost about epiglottitis. That's the first thing you should be thinking about because it can be such an emergency and can kill so quickly. So we want to think about something life-threatening. With this patient, you know, they, they kind of have this, what they describe as this tripoding where they're leaning forward. That's because that kind of helps them. It kind of helps mobilize the epiglottis and allows a little bit more air in. The drooling is just an effect of the swelling. And then the strider, again, because of the edema, there's just a, a focal acceleration of air leading to strider. When I think of epiglottitis, classically we'll go to Haemophilus influenza, and generally that is the type B organism that would cause epiglottitis, which is the one we vaccinate against. And this patient did not receive their vaccine, so they may or may not, most likely may, have H. flu. And this fortunately is something that we hardly ever see anymore because of the vaccination against it, but with, you know, people declining vaccines or coming from other countries, it's certainly always a possibility. The The real key, and sometimes we'll be asked in a question like this, what's the most appropriate next step in management? And really, it comes down to a, a establishing an emergency airway uh, because of the potential for it to just close down. It's important that you do not manipulate the airway in any way outside of an operating room, because you really want to be able to do it in a uh, secured um, situation. There, there's like a couple, a little bit of the treatment algorithm, which may be more than step one really needs to know, but you can give steroids and uh, nebulized epinephrine. And then you're kind of, depending on if they are looking unstable, you will proceed to intubate them. 
if that is where, where they're heading, right? Absolutely. A couple other things that you might see in these patients is that they, they may, you know, you obviously the difficulty breathing. The strider may or may not be at rest depending on how difficult of a time they are having breathing. But when it becomes uh, strider constantly without uh, any remittance, uh, that's when you start to see things going downhill. They may have like a hoarse voice as well, a sore throat, and their fever will look particularly high. Uh, you typically don't see a cough in these patients, though I can't say you would never see a cough. So let's uh, let's back up here. Here the answer is Haemophilus influenza. Classically, if you were to have a little time and you were unsure about the diagnosis, you may do a lateral x-ray of the neck and face. What you might see there is inflammation and edema around the epiglottis and the the term is called the thumbprint sign or the thumb sign. Yep, absolutely. And then one other thing, if you're somebody who likes mnemonics, there are the four D's of epiglottitis, uh, dysphagia, dysphonia, drooling, and distress. So that may help you uh, remember some of those details. I like it. And then some of the other options here at two years old, kind of the classic bugs that we're looking at in these kind of patients with URIs are going to be strep pneumo, moraxella, and then non-typable H flu. This case is a little different because they are unvaccinated, so they have type B classically causing the epiglottitis, but those three are particularly important for most of the upper airway diseases that you see in pediatric patients. Moraxella, you may see like, uh, you know, like I said, uh, upper airway or URI, laryngitis, sinusitis, otitis media as well, and strep again, kind of the same story. Parainfluenza virus is a little different. So it would cause croup, which can be, uh, you know, it can, can kind of come on uh, in a similar presentation where you you see a patient with fever and strider. Typically, they have this kind of barky cough. I think it can be described as like a seal-like cough. Uh, they also have a classic x-ray sign, I believe. If you were unsure about the diagnosis, if you were to do a AP x-ray, you would see what is called the steeple sign, which is just sort of the, the uh, constriction of the larynx there. And that's really all that we've got for H-flu. Vaccinate your kids. Yes. All right. Shall we move on to the last question, Stuart? And no, Ted. Actually, we're going to stop here and pick this up in micro part four. Another reminder, go to bit.ly slash paymyusmle. We are running a contest now where you can help promote inside the boards and do various things like Post images or videos to your Instagram story and tag inside the boards and use the hashtag listen, learn, live. Post things that uh, kind of you do to de-stress and you can earn points. Each month, the top three points earners will be entered into a contest to win the grand prize of your USMLE or Comlex registration fee. And we're also giving away prizes each month, like subscriptions to our All Audio QBank. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends about the Study Smarter series for the USMLE Step 1 
and Comlex Level 1. And check out our other podcast, the main ITB channel, uh, chock full of other advice from leaders in the medical education space, as well as the Medical Nemonist, focused on accelerated learning techniques and memory hacks so that you can actually remember what you've studied.